All right, we're going to get started today with the 110th Psalm. This is the Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauty of holiness. From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for allowing us to meet here today. And uh, uh, may this service be uh, uh, glorifying to you. And uh, may our words and our actions throughout the week ahead just be uh, right in your sight. And may our conduct be that which brings glory to you. Lord, thank you for all that you've done for us. And help us just to uh, live our lives in a honoring way and to uh, just bring you the glory that you are due. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, just a couple of announcements here. Um, it's very, very cold today, so if you're watching on YouTube, we're going to keep this as short as possible. We'll do the sermon and one more psalm, and I'm not going to do a New Testament reading or anything like that, but um, uh, it, it's bitter cold, and just a few people have come out, and I'm, I'm surprised at even that. These are very brave souls that are sitting in the wind and the, uh, the, uh, the uh, cold temperatures right now. But um, anyway, a couple things is I have found a building which I think will be suitable to our needs. There's great parking. It's rather a small building, but uh, uh, I'm hoping that uh, if things look right in the week ahead that maybe we could actually buy it within a week or two. And uh, uh, it'll need a little bit of work in the back as far as uh, upgrading the bathrooms. And uh, we could probably be moved into there within a month, I would hope, or maybe a month and a half. But uh, anyway, uh, that's something to look forward to. I uh, think everybody here has been baptized, and if you haven't, uh, today probably isn't the best day to do that. So um, uh, if you absolutely positively want to be baptized, I will take you out there. There's big waves, and uh, well, I'll just let one of the waves cover you. Um, anyway, um, this is, I believe, our 62nd Genesis sermon, and it's um, uh, Genesis 27, 30 through 40. We'll uh, talk about that again in just a second. And um, as I said, I'm not going to do a New Testament reading this week just simply because it's cold and we're going to want to get out of here before people actually have hypothermia and die. So um, what we'll do is we will go ahead and read one more psalm. And it's a short psalm like the last one was. And uh, once we do that, we'll read our text and uh, we'll get into uh, today's sermon. So this is the 111th psalm. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation, the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him, and he will be ever mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice, all his precepts are sure, they stand fast forever and ever, and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Amen. All right, so uh, 
We have today, as I said, uh, Genesis 27, verses 30 through 40. It's 11 verses, and it's entitled, It's Not Deja Vu. And as always, before we get into our uh, sermon, I like to give you this day in history. I have a couple points today. Today is February 17th, and on this day in 1801, the U.S. House of Representatives broke an electoral tie between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. Jefferson was elected president and Burr became vice president. That's kind of the way it was for the first uh, few elections is the uh, the uh, running, the people who challenged each other, the winner would become president and the, uh, the second would become the vice president. And um, the electoral college is something that people love to complain about when they're on the losing side. But uh, when they win, then, of course, it doesn't matter. Al Gore recently, uh, you know, he said we should do away with the Electoral College because it didn't go in his favor one time. But the fact is that the wisdom of our founding fathers uh, uh, saw the need for the Electoral College. And if you don't understand the process, it would be good for you to study it and understand that it really is what protects us from anarchy and we will be at that point soon enough anyway but uh, uh, it's a great system and it was well thought out uh, real quick question about this though is does anybody know what else Aaron Burr is famous for mm-hmm. he duel he uh, shot uh, he had a duel with uh, Alexander Hamilton and he shot him and Hamilton died the next day so uh, kind of uh, a fun little thing there a little American history and then on uh, this day in 1817, the first gaslit streetlights appeared on the streets of, anybody know the first? No, I'm close. He said Philadelphia? Boston. No, not Boston. It's uh, Baltimore. Baltimore, Maryland got the uh, first gaslit uh, streetlights. And then on this day in 1865, this is a very sad thing to me, uh, Columbia, South Carolina was burned. Uh, the uh, Confederates were evacuating. The Union forces were moving in. And that was General Sherman that did the burning, as he did with uh, much, much of our uh, southern states. And uh, the reason, does anybody know why they went in and were particularly hard on South Carolina? South Carolina was the first to succeed, succeed from the Union. That's correct. And uh, yeah, that's right. So uh, we, uh, we uh, in the south... I've uh, traveled all of the southern states, actually to all the states, but as I've gone to the southern states, there are memorials everywhere of what happened to the south and where the battles were, and uh, in particular, uh, uh, notes about Sherman. I can tell you that a lot of the southern states are very unhappy to this day with the way that he executed uh, his uh, part of the uh, war, but uh, that was this day in 1865. And then in 1876, Julius Wolfe was credited with being the first to can sardines. Doesn't mean anything to me, but uh, maybe some of you like sardines, so I included that. Um, 1878 in San Francisco. Oh, this is fun. The first large city telephone exchange opened, and it had 18 phones. So it might have been a large city, but it didn't have a large telephone exchange. But uh, there you go. That was 1878, and how... how things have changed in the past 130-some years. And then in uh, 1944, during the World War II, uh, we had the Battle of Eniwetok Atoll. And uh, it began on this day, and it ended five days later. Uh, we secured the island, and I was reading about that this morning. I believe that it said there were 36 U.S. casualties and over 800 Japanese casualties. So it was a, uh, it was a real uh, wipeout for uh, the Japanese. But... Um, 
36 of our uh, soldiers put on their boots and never thought they'd not be taking them off again. So uh, have to be ready for your day and you have to be ready, you know, to uh, meet the Lord because it's going to happen to all of us, but it just happened a little early for these gentlemen. And um, any Weetak Atoll is one of the places where the uh, atomic bombs were uh, set off once we uh, won the war and we started testing. They set off, I think, 43 atomic bombs on any Weetak Atoll. And uh, the first hydrogen bomb was there on a little sub-island of the atoll. And actually, it completely vaporized the sub-island. It, it was completely gone. So uh, that's uh, any Weetak Atoll. And then, of course, we have in 1985, uh, postage stamps were raised from 20 to 22 cents. And considering that postage stamps were about one penny for eons, they went up very, very quickly, up to 22 cents in uh, 1985. And... Uh, just within the past 20 years, we have them at, I think, they're 49 cents now. And uh, the post, post office is going to be canceling Saturday deliveries. So the new motto is changed from something about the weather, you know, neither snow, snow nor rain nor sleet nor whatever. Uh, the new motto is going to be, if it absolutely positively does not need to be there in the next week, use the Postal Service. But uh, there you go. 1992 on this day, 17 uh, February in Milwaukee, serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer was sentenced to life in prison. Now, if you know his story, uh, it was about two and a half years later, he was beaten to death in prison. And the reason why is because he was a cannibal and uh, he killed people and then ate them. But during his time in prison, you may or may not know this, he actually made a profession for Jesus Christ. He uh, became a Christian. And uh, I was thinking about that, that what a surprise for people that sit in their churches, have no heart for the Lord, they're just doing it and they're going through the motions and they think they're on God's good side. And uh, they look down on people like Jennifer Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer, who uh, ate people and they're gonna be cast out in the outer darkness. And Jeffrey Dahmer, if it was a true conversion, will really be walking on streets of gold. Such is the mercy and the grace of God. So uh, we don't wanna ever underestimate the love of God and uh, the power of the blood of Jesus Christ unto salvation. So uh, that's uh, this day in history from uh, 17 February. And we'll read the sermon text now and uh, we'll get started. This is uh, Genesis 27 verses 30 through 40. And um, as I said, the title of the sermon is It's Not Deja Vu. So here we go. Genesis 27 verse 30. Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the... Oops, I lost my page. It's very windy out here. Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master. 
And all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. It shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And if I lose my place today, I apologize with this wind. I got stuff blowing all over the place. But uh, I uh, want you to note that the story we've been looking at for the past few weeks and including today's, it's awful hard for us to accept what happened unless we look carefully into what happened and why these things are recorded. Before Jacob and Esau were born, God knew the outcome. He looked into the hearts of these two boys and he made his choice, his divine choice, as to who would receive the birthright and the blessing. As with all things in the Bible, faith is the key. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you an example to think about while I'm talking, and I'm going to bring up a similar example in a little while. Suppose you have a company and you hire two employees and you have a long-term plan for the company, okay? Which of these two employees would you prefer to have? You make a list of things that you want done every single day just to keep the employees busy, but you give them insights into the long-term vision of the company as well. The first does exactly what he's told, but he does it without any regard to the ultimate goal of the company. He's so concerned about fulfilling the details that the final objective has no relevance in his uh, daily actions. The second is obedient, but he may miss the mark occasionally. However, his eyes are constantly on the end goal of the company. It is his one main objective. He understands the need for the daily tasks, but they don't consume him. Instead, they guide him toward the goal. So the question is, which is the better choice and why? Think about that for a while. Uh, here's our text verse for today. I just had somebody walk up that I haven't seen in years, so I got a little uh, sidetracked there. It's good to see you, Brother Brian. Here's our text verse for the day. It's from Numbers chapter 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And Edom shall be a possession, Seir also. His enemies shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. You know, it never ceases to amaze me what God has done in his beautiful creation and in his plan of redemption. And his word is such a treasure because everything about it keeps pointing us to Jesus Christ. God in his wisdom gave twins to Rebecca and determined that one would serve the other. That prophecy came to pass exactly as the Bible said it would. And just as all things in the Bible either have come to pass or will come to pass. We have a sure word and we have a sure hope which is grounded in the surety of the truth of God. And so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Okay, our first of three thoughts today is the missed blessing. And I want you to know, if you were here last week, I said we have three thoughts, and I actually only had two thoughts, so people must have gotten to the end of the second thought and said, man, is this going to go on all day? When you hear third thought today, it's the last thought. Anyway, 
as we've seen in the past sermons about Jacob and Esau, they prefigure Christ and Adam. Last week we saw that Christ came as a man and he prevailed over Adam's transgression. And this was pictured in the blessing of Jacob instead of Esau. As I said then, what Jacob did was deceptive, but God recorded it to show us the pattern of what would occur. Not in the deception, but that Christ really came as a man. So it's not a one-for-one picture or comparison. What Jesus did was without any deception, but so that we can see the patterns of Adam and Christ, we've been given the story. We now continue on with the account. This is verse 30. Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. No sooner does Jacob leave Isaac's tent than Esau comes into it. There's a repetition in this verse in the Hebrew, which commentators look at this being as close as it can get. Here's what it says. It says, Yaakov vehi ach yasol yasa. Jacob came and was yet gone, gone. The Jewish scholar named Jarki sees the doubling of this word, yasol yasa, or gone, gone, as one going out and the other coming right in the door at the same time. Now, no matter whether they stopped to talk about the weather or whether they just waved as they passed each other or if they missed each other by the, uh, a hair's breadth, it was exceedingly close and it points directly to the hand of God upon the entire account. Esau was told to go out and do his hunting. So you have to find an animal. It has to be at the exact spot where it's going to be timed where he comes back from the hunting. And then, of course, he has to prepare it. He has to bring it into his father at the exact moment that Jacob is leaving. There is no chance at all in this account, but the deliberate timing and foreknowledge of God. Jacob, who is Israel, was to receive the blessing, and through him would come Jesus Christ. Nothing is left to chance, and nothing happens apart from God's infinite wisdom. Whether Rebecca and Jacob's actions were right in our eyes does not change what we are to learn from this story. God made and he oversaw the selection of both the birthright and the blessing. Go to verse 31. He also made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that your soul may bless me. Right at the very beginning of this chapter, Isaac said this to Esau. Let me read you the words that were said then. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Esau has done exactly what he was asked to do. And this verse repeats it. Esau didn't skip anything and he was completely obedient. And yet he missed out on the blessing. In this, we can see many, many people in the world today who are living their life, going to church, they're crossing all of the T's, they're dotting all of the I's, and yet they lack the faith that God seeks. God gives us his word. It's called the Holy Bible. And in it are all kinds of do's and don'ts, things that many can and do spend their entire life doing, and yet they're going to be excluded from the prize. And Paul explains why in Romans chapter 9. Let me explain it to you. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. Now what I want you to do is I want you to think of Jacob who went into Isaac's tent. 
the Gentiles that did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, now I want you to think of Esau going into his father's tent, Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, just as Esau is not seeking the blessing by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. He's crossing all of the T's and dotting all of the I's, but he has no faith in what he's doing. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And I've said this in other sermons, a stumbling stone is something that's very small. It's something that you just trip over. You've got this big book called the Bible, and you think I've got to do all these things to make God happy, when God in the entire Bible is telling you all he wants is your faith, that he will get you to glory by his means, if you just simply trust in that. So it says, they stumbled at the stumbling stone, just as Esau is stumbling at the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Put your trust in Jesus Christ, and all will be made well with you. This is not limited to the Jews alone. I gotta tell you what, but to anyone who pursues God's favor through works apart from faith. Jacob may have been cunning in how he obtained his father's blessing, but he had faith in what he did. Esau, on the other hand, followed his father's instructions, but God saw his heart. He was working deeds in order to be blessed instead of living by faith in order to be blessed. These deeds are what separated him from the blessing. I can tell you this, the tastiest food in the world is no substitute for the mother's loving hand who prepares the simplest meal. And the favor of God rests only on those who live by faith. Verse 32, and his father Isaac said to him, who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac must have thought that he was hearing things or he was confused in his head because he hears the recognizable voice of Esau. That's who's speaking to him, but he's just had a meal and blessed who he thought was Esau. I've done this before. No, Isaac, this is not deja vu. Imagine you're talking to somebody, and this happens to me all the time. You're talking to somebody and then you realize that they aren't the person that you thought you were talking to. When this happens, you have this kind of moment of stupor as you try to sort things out. And this is exactly where Isaac is. And so to help him along, Esau responds in a way which is truthful, but it's not exactly correct. He says, I am your son. This is correct. But then he says, I am your firstborn. This is truthful, but it's not exactly correct. He sold his birthright to Jacob. And so even though technically he is the firstborn, he no longer has the rights of the firstborn, including the right to claim that he is the firstborn, even though he is. If that confuses you, it's confusing. But he finishes his sentence and he says, I am Esau. He gives his name as he received it at birth, not, when it was not as it was changed when he sold his birthright to his brother. At that time, his name was changed to Edom. So what he's saying is literally true, but it's deceptive nonetheless. We can see the same concepts running through the people of Israel and those who are the true sons of God. You've got this whole group of people called Israel, but only a certain number of them are the true sons of God. I'll give you an example from Exodus chapter four. It says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Afterward, however, 
God gave Israel the law, which included the rite of circumcision. But there was more than just circumcision. Okay, you can say, well, I'm circumcised and therefore I'm a son of God. In order to be considered a true member of the faith, you had to do more than just be circumcised. Okay, and Paul explains this in Romans chapter 2. Here's what he says. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, circumcision, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? So just because you're circumcised doesn't mean that you are a true son of God. You have to do other things along with that. And those other things always involve faith. Let me continue with what it says in Romans. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward and in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And then we see in both Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah, they speak of circumcision of the heart. So what Paul is writing on here, he's building on what the law already says. A Jew cannot claim the title of being a Jew without doing what goes along with that title, all right? Likewise, Esau could not legitimately bear the title of firstborn because he no longer bore what went along with it. He had sold the birthright. And if he couldn't bear the title, then he was not really entitled to the blessing either. I hope you understand. I know that was a lot of words to get to the point, but Esau, what he is doing is he's acting in a manner that's just as deceiving as what he's going to blame his brother for. Verse 33, then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, who? The Hebrew here says that Isaac trembled with a great trembling greatly. He was so confused, he's so overwrought that he literally shook violently at what occurred. This is the same word that is used to describe the trembling of the people at Mount Sinai and even the quaking of the mountain itself in Exodus chapter 19. Let me read you this. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. That's the word that's used for Isaac as well. And these people are seeing the presence of God and they're overwhelmed by it. This is the type of trembling. It goes on. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked. It's the same word again, the actual quaking of the mountain. This is what's happening to Isaac. Just as with the events at Sinai for the people of Israel, Isaac's trembling came from the astonishment of the divine sign. And we know that this is true because of what he will say in the continuation of verse 33. Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came and I have blessed him and indeed he shall be blessed. With sudden clarity of his mind, Isaac sees completely what has just happened. The people at the foot of Mount Sinai 
received no greater insight into the work of God than Isaac has seen in his tent right here. The food was received, the blessing was given, and Jacob indeed shall be blessed. The heavens have opened Isaac's dead eyes to the fulfillment of the plan of God, which was prophesied while these two boys were still in Rebekah's womb. What his physical eyes had missed because of his blindness, his spiritual eyes have now comprehended. He has this lucidity of mind and he has come to realize that the blessing is not subject to his affection for Esau, but it is a right which was entrusted to him by God's grace, just as it was to his father before him. Because this blessing is of divine source, it is transferred by divine choice. He has been impelled by a higher authority to pass on what he has received to the son who was chosen by the one who originally bestowed the blessing many, many eons ago. The will of man was completely excluded in the transfer and therefore man could not randomly choose to take it back. Isaac cannot change his mind about the blessing. Isaiah 14 shows us that this is true. All things come about by the sovereign will of God. Here's what Isaiah 14, it asks two questions and they're both obvious in their answer. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? The answer is nobody. His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? The answer is nobody. The particular special note for each of us today is that of all of the things that Isaac could have been remembered for, and we've seen a whole life of Isaac in the past pages of the Bible, in the great hall of faith, which is Hebrews chapter 11 in the Bible, the blessings upon these two boys of his is what he's remembered for. Here's what it says. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Isaac realized that the blessing that he had pronounced rightfully belonged to Jacob. And so he says to Esau, I have blessed him and indeed he shall be blessed. What I have spoken, I have spoken and the blessing will remain upon Jacob. God looked at his words right here and he credited it to him in his own word for righteousness. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. There was no going back and there was only the determination that what had occurred was by divine guidance. Edom gave up his rights and Jacob stepped in and claimed them. Likewise, Adam made his choice and he gave up paradise and Jesus came and received it back. Now Adam's children can accept what Jesus Christ has done or they can remain forever in Adam. Verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me also, oh my father. Isaac trembled with a great trembling and now Isaac cries with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. The emotional level is probably as high as any in any room in all of human history. The Latin Vulgate says that Esau actually roared. It is as if he were a lion in the anguish of hunger. Barachini gam ani avi, bless me, me also, oh my father. Unfortunately, by the divine providence, the blessing had been given and what was spoken could not be reversed. Once again, as with a jillion other times recorded in the Bible, when God's divine will is spoken, what is spoken will come to pass. And as sad as this is for Esau, 
we can take comfort in exactly this fact. When God seals a believer in his son, it is done for all time. His will can never be thwarted. Salvation is by necessity eternal. What Esau lost in his blessing is done. And the same is true in Christ for all who have called on him as Lord. It is done. Our second thought today, words have meaning. Verse 35, but he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. Isaac now has this clear thinking and because of it, he puts less blame on Jacob than he is excusing his own actions to Esau. Now here's an example. If two people are out in a car and they get in an accident, the response to the police officer would be different based on the relationship of the people in the car. If they were not friends, the one talking to the cop might say, well, he was driving too fast, and because he was uh, going so fast and uh, driving recklessly, we had this accident. But if they're friends, he might say, my friend was trying to get me to work, and I was pressuring him to get me there, and so we had an accident. The difference in how we present an argument is based on who the affected parties are and the circumstances that brought about the case. Isaac is now excusing his actions to Esau more than blaming Jacob. And this is clear based on a word which is used in the next verse. Here's verse 36. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Young's literal translation of the Bible gives the best sense of what I think Esau is trying to say. Let me read you both again. Here's the New King James Version. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Young's says it this way. Is it because one called his name Jacob that he doth take me by the heel these two times. In other words, is he doing this because of the name that he was given? He isn't sure of the reason behind the action. If Isaac had blamed Jacob directly, then Esau would have responded as many translations stated in an affirmative way. But instead, he is asking it from a state of unknowing and he's reaching for an answer. Why? And is this the answer? because of his name. But we've already seen the reason why. Earlier in verse 31, I said that Esau followed his father's instructions, but God saw his heart. He was working his deeds in order to be blessed instead of living by faith in order to be blessed. Paul speaking about the promises of God to Abraham apart from works of the law shows us exactly how this works in Romans chapter four. It says, for the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promises of no effect. Esau wasn't under the law, but he was seeking the promise in exactly the same way. He was doing exactly what Isaac ordered, but without faith in what the promise signified. Now, let me ask you something similar to what I asked you earlier. You answer in your own mind, which will God be pleased with? The first is a person who follows the Bible in every detail. He follows it scrupulously, but he does not believe what the Bible says. Rather, he's doing it because maybe he's, we'll say he's a priest and he gets a great salary. He gets great benefits. People love him because he's there teaching about the Bible. He has a light workload. He has all of these reasons why he follows the Bible. The second guy, is a guy who is absolutely in love with Jesus Christ. He reads his Bible, he cherishes it. He does what he can to be obedient and a good Christian, 
but he falls short of what the Bible asks time and time again. He makes errors, and then he asks God to forgive him and change him so that he will be pleasing to God. Which one is in right standing with God? The fact is that God has absolutely no respect for the first one, and he has tender care for the latter one. And if you don't believe me, look at the life of King David, a man beloved by God, a man who uh, God was saving Jerusalem 400 years after his death for the sake of my servant David. And yet he committed adultery. He killed a person. He took an unlawful census. He did all of these things that he should not have done. And yet God loved him because of his faithful and obedient heart, even if his actions weren't always right. A good New Testament example is Paul. Before he met Jesus, he was a Pharisee. He followed the law scrupulously. He was blameless in every manner possible. And yet he was outside of God's favor. But then he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And afterward, he was a man full of faults. And he knew he was. As a matter of fact, he got in an argument with a guy named Barnabas. And the argument was so bad that the Greek says it was a paroxysm. It's, a, it's a, 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 just this giant, almost a whirlwind of a fight over another Christian. That's obviously not Christian behavior, and yet God much more favored him after the conversion than before the conversion. And this is the lesson that each of us needs to learn about this. It is faith and an obedient heart that God desires rather than scrupulous attendance to the precepts while not living the intent behind those precepts. The first is Esau, the latter is Jacob. Esau was living his life and doing what was necessary just to get to the next meal, but he never saw any reason for what lay ahead. Dad's promise of a blessing was meant was met with complete obedience to his tasks, but with no regard to the ultimate goal that the blessing would provide. Jacob, on the other hand, missed the mark. He was a deceiver. But it was with the intent and goal of the promised blessing. And he allowed himself to be prompted along, get this, by his mother. Now what's important about that? His mother is the one that had the divine oracle. She had the word of God that said that the younger will be in charge or the older will serve the younger, if you remember that. And that is exactly what we are to do as well. We are to allow ourselves to be prompted by the word of God and we're to live as led by the Spirit of God who wrote the Word of God in the first place. And that is the lesson that we're to learn from these. Not to be a deceiver, but to pay attention to these, these uh, pictures that God is giving us in His Word. Let's go on to verse 36. For He has supplanted me these two times, or this is a continuation of verse 36. For He has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, He has taken away my blessing. In an attempt to answer his own question as to why this occurred, Esau now states two inaccuracies. The first is that Jacob took away his birthright, which in fact, he sold for soup. The second is that he took away the blessing, which now in fact belonged to Jacob because of the birthright. Also, Jacob didn't take it away. Instead, Isaac gave it away to Jacob, even if it was done under false pretenses. But because of his perceived wrongs, he says that Jacob supplanted him two times, and he uses a word which is the same root word of the name Jacob, which means a heel grabber or a supplanter. So he's making a pun about his brother in this sentence, saying, well, he's a deceiver, and look, he's deceived me. Verse 36 continues, and he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? 
Now this seems like an obvious question and Isaac's answer might seem all the more surprising when later in the Bible we're going to see that Jacob is going to make pronouncements over all 12 of his sons and also two of his grandsons. He asked the question, isn't there one more blessing in your tent for me, dad? Verse 37, then Isaac answered and said to Esau, indeed, I have made him your master and all his brethren I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine, I sustained him. What shall I now do for you, my son? Jacob will, as I said, bless all 12 of his sons or he'll make pronouncements over them and he'll bless two of his grandsons. But he's going to do it in a way which will make distinctions between all of them and which will find a fulfillment in each one of them individually. We're going to see this in Genesis chapter 48 and 49. However, Isaac's blessing on Jacob was an all-encompassing bestowal of the good things that are found leading to the Messiah as well as authority over his brothers and other earthly and spiritual benefits as well. Because of this, his question now seems more obvious. What shall I do for you now, my son? Verse 38, and Esau said to his father, have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. The words of Hebrews chapter 12 ring forth from this verse, which we're looking at in Genesis. Here's what it says. Pursue peace with all peoples and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone should fall from the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. There is a godly way to walk, and there is an ungodly and profane way to walk. Esau chose the ungodly way, and in the end it cost him. And we can go back and ask ourselves this question now. Did God's prophecy about Esau serving Jacob before he was born cause what happened here? Or did it simply look forward and see the outcome of Esau's choices? And the answer is obvious. Esau made his choices and God knew what they would be. Likewise, God gives us free will to make our own choice. So I would ask each of you to choose wisely because your choices may have eternal consequences. Our third thought today, Esau's blessing. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, I'll stop right before we give the blessing. I want you to note that it never mentions that Isaac ate the meal that Esau brought to him. To Isaac, the meal was as important as the intended blessing. Only after eating and drinking did Jacob get blessed. If you think it through, Esau sold his birthright for a meal, but he received the blessing there without there being any meal. It's a great picture of us and our relationship with Jesus Christ or a lack of it. The spiritual significance of Jacob's blessing is lacking from Esau's. Despite this, and despite what his blessing says, which is actually more of a curse than a blessing, Esau probably went away very pleased because to him or any person like him, the act meant more than the substance. Verse 39 continues, Behold, 
Your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven above. The first thing to note, which is different from Jacob's blessing, is that Isaac says nothing about his smell. When he blessed Jacob, he said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. If the personal smell of Esau was what Isaac loved, he would have said this again, but he doesn't. And so this confirms what I've said in three sermons now, that the clothes that Rebekah put on her son Jacob were priestly garments which smelled of incense used in conducting priestly rituals. The second thing that's important to note here is the translation of what Isaac says. Let me read it again from the New King James Version, and then I'm going to read you the exact same verse from the NIV, and I want you to listen to the difference. This is the New King James Version. Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven above. Here's the NIV. Your dwelling will be away from the earth's riches and away from the dew of heaven above. One says his dwelling will be of the earth's riches and the other says it will be away from the earth's riches. In this case, translations like the King James Version and the New King James Version are literally right because he gives the same blessing using the same words, but they're actually wrong. Isaac blessed Jacob beginning with the dew of heaven and then the fatness of the earth. His blessing to Esau begins with the fatness of the earth and then the dew of heaven. This establishes a contrast. Therefore, the words he uses are meant to be taken in a contrasting sense. From the dew of heaven can mean either getting from the dew of heaven or being away from the dew of heaven. His blessing to Jacob is the first and his blessing to Esau is the latter. This portion of Esau's blessing is in contrast to what Jacob received. The NIV is a much better translation here. History bore it out in where Esau lived, by the way, because where his descendants ended up living, there was no real dew of heaven. It was a very dry and uh, arid area. The next verse will show us the, the confirmation of what I just said, that the NIV is right. Verse 40, by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. Jacob got the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth, which resulted in plenty of grain and wine. Esau didn't get either, and that, that results in him living by the sword and being subject to his brother Jacob. The reason why I'm being detailed about this is because differences in translations are very, very important. If you stick with one translation, you very well may miss what God really intends you to see. Translators do the very best they can, but they bring with them their preconceptions when they're making their translations. And this is the same with commentaries. So I tell you, be careful when you read commentaries because people already have in their mind what they want to believe. And this is the same with preachers. And that's why I say week after week after week, when you leave here, you go home and you study what I've talked about because I may be wrong. And when you hear a person on TV, don't just trust him because he's a TV figure. Go check it out because people are coming to the Bible with their preconceptions about what God wants us to know. And so we insert those things into the Bible rather than drawing out what God is trying to have us draw out from the Bible. We, our thoughts are based on our thoughts about him and about our relationship with him. Esau is going to live away from the riches of heaven and earth and it, he will live by the sword and he will be subject to his brother Jacob. All right, verse 40 continues. And it shall come to pass when you become restless 
that you shall break his yoke from your neck. This is the final portion of the blessing on Esau, and it's very hard to pin down to a particular point in human history. The Edomites, who are the descendants of Esau, were subject to Israel several times, starting with Saul, the first king of Israel, and they rebelled, and then they'd be subject again, and then they'd rebel, and then they'd be subject again. They finally shook off the yoke of Israel under King Ahaz in 2 Kings chapter 16. However, after the Bible ended with Malachi, about 430 years before the coming of Christ, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus says that about 129 B.C., John Hyrcanus subdued all the Idumeans, who are the Edomites, okay, and permitted them to stay in that country. If they would circumcise their genitals, ouch, and make use of the laws of the Jews, and they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the use of circumcision and the rest of Jewish ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them that they were hereafter no other than Jews. The Edomites were assimilated into the Jewish people. But even at the time of Herod, who was the king at the birth of uh, Jesus, he was an Edomite. So they continued to be in rule of Israel, these Edomites, until the Israelites were scattered in AD 70. So what is the ultimate fulfillment of this verse? It comes when Jesus Christ came. And the reason why, I'll explain this, we all have yokes on us, every one of us, and we're all in bondage as humans to something. Directly, we're in bondage to sin because of Adam. Indirectly, we might be in bondage to a bank. Some of us have mortgages and we're in bondage to these people. We might be in bondage to an agreement with a business partner, or we might be in bondage, as hard as it is to say this, in a marriage. Some people are not happy in their marriage, and to them it's bondage. But the Lord would ask that you work that marriage out and not end it. Whatever your bondage is, there is only one place of real freedom, and that is when we get restless with the things of the world and we look forward to the things of eternity. Edom was subjected to Israel, who was the steward of the law, okay? In the New Testament, Paul says that the law is bondage. It is a yoke of submission, which he tells all of us not to get enslaved in. And there is one way to be free from its constraints, and that is found in Jesus Christ. So let me take two more minutes of your time and explain this to you, if you've never thought it through, why you need to not be subject to the law and how you can be freed from the law through Jesus. God is infinite, and that means everything about him is infinite. He is infinitely perfect. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely righteous. He created Adam. Adam was perfect, but he gave Adam a choice. And Adam rebelled against God. He exercised his free will, and he fell, and sin entered the world. And then we have this plan of redemption that God has shown us all through the pages of the Bible. And at one point in that plan of redemption, he gave us what's called the law of Moses. And that was to show us the standards by which we will be judged. This is God's holiness being put down in the paper and showing us, you need to do these things in order to live in my presence. But the Bible goes on to say that none of us can do those things. And so we are subject to this bondage because we can't do these things and yet we have to do them in order to have fellowship with God. And so what did God do? In his infinite wisdom and his great grace and mercy, he sent his own son who could do these things because he didn't inherit Adam's sin. He was born of a virgin. 
He was born of the Holy Spirit and therefore he didn't inherit Adam's sin. And he lived that law that all of us have to meet. We all have to meet it. He lived it for us. And then he gave its life up as a sacrifice of atonement. And so if we say, I want what Jesus did, then God will credit that to us. So either we have to meet the law perfectly or be punished based on the law, or we meet it perfectly in Jesus Christ and our punishment is transferred to him at the cross of Calvary. That is the wisdom, that is the grace, and that is the glory of what God did in Jesus Christ. And if you've never understood that, I would ask you today to just simply ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, to put your trust in him and to call on him as Lord and Savior, and he will do so, and he will forgive you, and you will be eternally sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, and you will walk on streets of gold and righteousness for all of eternity with those here who have done the same. All right, that's uh, uh, our sermon for today. I have a closing verse before we finish up. It's from Matthew 11, talking about a yoke of bondage. Well, let me read you what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And here I was sitting here thinking about this verse today. It, Jesus said, I, I am gentle and lowly in heart. The creator of the entire universe, every single thing we see, everything that we know, every thought that we or any human being who has ever lived is known by Jesus Christ. All of the universe's power is held in check by his mind, by his wisdom and by his spoken word. And yet he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. What a great God. What an absolutely immense God that he could just snuff us out for one sin and instead he comes and he does this for us. I just am, I'm amazed at the beauty and the glory of the Lord. Anyway, I hope that uh, uh, each of you will just reflect on that today, that uh, Jesus really is so wonderfully immense and so perfect and so glorious. Next week, we have Genesis 27, 41 through 46. It's called the Brother's Anger. It's a picture of church reformation. And I'm not talking about just the Protestant reformation. I'm talking about continuing reformation within the church. And it's kind of an interesting concept. And I think this is what God is trying to show us with those final verses of chapter 27. All right, one more thing before we take communion today. I have a poem as I do each and every week. And this particular poem, like last week, I am not going to put the blessing of Jake, of Esau into poetic form. I'm going to read it exactly as Isaac said, but the rest of it I've done into a poem for you. All right, this is called You Shall Serve Your Brother. Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished Jacob's blessing, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from, his, from Isaac, his father, that Esau's brother came in from hunting and food dressing. He had made savory food and brought it to his dad. It was no bother. And he said to his father, Arise and eat of his son's game. Do this, dad, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? What's your name? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau, you see. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate of all of it before you came. Yes, it's true. I have blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed abundantly. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, Bless me, me also with another. How could this have happened? I need to know why. 
But Isaac said to Esau, his son, yes, he was confessing. Your brother came with deceit, and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob as he shook? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now just look, he has taken away my blessing. I can't believe these crimes. And he said to his father quite pitifully, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered, and to his son Esau he said, Indeed, I have made him your master, you see. And all his brethren I have given to him as servants. He is the head. With grain and wine I have sustained him abundantly. What shall I do now for you, my son? I have given him my blessing, my only one. And Esau said to his father in an excited state, Have you only one blessing, my father, just one? Bless me also, O my father, make me also great. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept at what had been done. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And so ends the story of how the blessing did pass from Esau to Jacob in Isaac's tent. And from the account, we see how Jacob did surpass his older brother, thus meeting God's intent. Each of us can also receive an eternal blessing by calling on the Lord Jesus' name and by donning white garments as our dressing. In heaven's scroll will be written our name. Praises and honor to our glorious Lord above who has showered us with his eternal love. And so to him, we lift our voices in praise. And so let us walk in his light all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for getting us through this service. It is so cold out here that I'm literally shaking. But uh, I pray that what I've said today has brought you glory and honor. And I pray that each person here has heard something that they can carry with them and help them in their week ahead and help them to just fix their eyes and their thoughts and their hearts on you. You're a great and wonderful God. Please be with each person here and bless them in the week ahead and just meet every need and fill them with good things so that they can just turn around and praise you and just jump for joy at being in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. All hail the name of Jesus. Amen.